My name is Gage. And my name is Ray. And you are listening to Gore Report, a true crime podcast. Yay! (laughs) As always, yay! (laughs) (laughs) So if you're new here to the show and this is your first time listening, then hi, welcome, welcome. We hope you're having a good day and a good week and and a a good good life. Second week in a row of us sharing a dumbass brain cell. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have it any other way, man. Oh, man, it's so like us, though. So the first big thing that I would like to say, and most of you have probably already seen this, because this is, by the time you guys are hearing this episode, this will be a couple of days old news. Mm-hmm. But as of, I think it was Monday, wasn't it? We got the notification that we have been a podcast for, for one year. Yeah, for one whole year. So, woo! Woo! All right. All right, dude. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so, that's actually pretty cool this give year. Me oh, give me Finn. Give fin. me Noggin. Oh, give me Noggin. You better stop. <laughs> if only, if you guys could see us right now, it's horrible. Um, so, that's really, really cool. And this first year, we've accomplished so much. I feel like we have, anyways. This year has flown by. We've gained some incredible listeners, and we've had some incredible interaction from you guys. It's just, it's really nice and really warm. It's very it's warm. It's very warm. So that's the first thing, is just to let you guys know that it's our one year, and we wanted to say thank you, because we could not have done it without any of you. The constant interaction and all of the emails and all of the things that we get from you guys means yeah. the world, and if it wasn't for our listeners... This show would be nothing. Absolutely nothing. It would be dry as fuck nothing. <laughs> Absolutely fucking nothing. That just sent me. I'm sorry. Uh? <laughs> All right. So before we jump into my case this week, I'm going to take a quick second to read an email that we got Ooh, from one of email. our listeners. Yes. And in this email is the request for today's case. Oh, nice. Yes. Okay, okay. And it was requested from Julia. I'm oh. sorry, I had to switch out of goblin mode. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, Julia. And this email reads, Hi, my name is Julia, and I just look up cases, and when I found yours, I knew I had found the one true crime podcast I will probably forever listen to. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. You two are so funny and provide so much information about these cases. I just listened to your episode of John Wayne Gacy, and this reminded me of another case. Do you mind covering the case of Joseph Ray Metheny? And she goes on to talk a little bit about it, which I'm not going to give away yet. But um, (laughs) she said, thank you for your time. I absolutely love your podcast. Oh, when my we goodness. absolutely love you. We do love you, Julia, but only if you consent to it. Because consent is important. I almost tripped over my words. <laughs> but you didn't. You did good. <laughs> consent right. is very important. In this household, we honor consent. <laughs> and that's just how it is. We don't care how much you don't like it. <laughs> the minute you did that, 
All I heard was, I'm tired of this, Grandpa. Well, it's too damn bad. (laughs) (laughs) That actually lives in my brain, like, rent-free completely, and I hate it. The amount of times that I think about that is awful. But on a real note, thank you so much, Julia, for that email. That was very kind and very sweet and much appreciated. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to send us two goblins an email. (laughs) It is appreciated. My little heart just pitter-pattered when I read that email. It was so sweet. (laughs) I love you so much. (laughs) But on a serious note, though, the emails that have been coming in have just been freaking amazing. I can't wait as we go through and share some of these requests with you. And it's just been really awesome. And I know that you and I wanted to share some of our goals that we're going to hopefully meet this year. This is what we're working on. Yes, yes. So as of this year, we're going into year two of being a podcast. So some things that you guys can expect. A, of course, we plan on keeping it as absolutely goblinish as we can. That's never (laughs) going to change. But another thing that I would like to see us do this year, and we have talked about it. I believe it was the Elizabeth Olton case Mm -hmm. uh, that we brought it up. But we have been thinking about starting a Patreon. Yeah. That is something that's very important, but the platform is a little intimidating to us. <laughs> you know, not going to lie, it really is, but well, that's not something. not only that, but we want to make sure that we have content for our Patreons, you know. Exactly. For our you, patrons, I you meant to make, say. You want to make sure that you can actually provide, you know. Yeah, so, and we don't want to put something out there that's like subpar because we don't. We want to make sure that it's good. If you're paying money for it, we want to make sure that you're getting your dollar's worth. Exactly, exactly. So that's something in the next coming months you will probably hear more about as we look into it. Someone mentioned merch. Yes, someone did mention merch, and that shit is crazy. We've had a few people bring up that they would like to see some Gore Report merch. So, with that being said, honestly... I have no idea how to even go about doing that, but that is something that me and Ray are looking into. We may or may not have some t-shirts. Yes. Or maybe some keychains or something like that. We don't know. We won't talk too much on it, but that is something you may or may not hear about in the coming months. It's fucking crazy to think about. All we can say is, is that the designs that we have been thinking of, you guys are going to love them. (laughs) You guys are going to love them. I definitely think so. And another cool thing that I would like to see happen this year, you know, me and you, I guess we're not new. This is our one year, but we're we're newer than other podcasts. You know what I'm saying? And we're not as big. We're definitely growing. But I think it would be really cool. If we had our first special guest on the show, maybe someone from a different pod or maybe me and you record with a different true crime podcast. I think that would be super, super cool. That would be really cool. So who knows? You guys may see a Gore Report crossover. Who knows? Oh, taking over the world slowly bit by bit. One squeal at a time. One squeal at a time. One tiny squeal at a time. (laughs) One tiny squeal. And the help of all of you, of course. (laughs) So, yeah, that's just some cool things you may or may not more than likely may see this year, hopefully. Why did you word it like that? Like, (laughs) I honestly don't know. (laughs) I honestly don't know. It felt like it was the right thing to do. I was trying to to leave some mystery. Uh Some... 
mystery. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, we're being so fucking weird. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. So without further ado, I'm honestly super excited to hear about uh, Mr. Joseph Metheny. No, you're not. Oh, God. Nope. Do I need to immediately retract my statement? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I do want to go ahead and preface and say that finding information on this case sucked. Oh, wow. There is so little information. And I don't know if that's because this, you know, was like in the 90s, 2000s kind of thing. Or maybe it just wasn't as high profile as others. I'm not sure. I'm not really familiar with the case. I so. don't see, and you'll you'll understand why I say this, but I don't see why this isn't considered high profile because of the nature of what goes on in the case. Oh, God, it's one of those. Uh, <laughs> but the timeline was all weird and trying to follow said timeline and get all the details for my usual deep dive. It just was not happening with this one. But I have a quote from his confession letter. Oh. Yes. So the best way that I can describe the way that today is going to go is both me and Joseph Metheny telling the story. Oh, I'm like really excited, but also I don't think I like that. <laughs> I don't think I like that at all, but all right. But it, all right. It, we'll load up the wagon. I'm, I'm ready. Joseph Roy Metheny was born March 2nd, 1953 in Baltimore, Maryland, and he was one of six children. Okay. Now, according to Joe, he had a childhood that was filled to the brim in hardships. He claimed that his father was an extreme alcoholic and that his mother, Jean, was a heroin addict, and they would both neglect him and his five siblings. Joe claims to have spent most of his childhood bouncing from house to house, living with foster families. And I say foster families relatively loosely because this wasn't something that was done because of the system. Basically, Joe's mom was paying people to keep her kids for like long periods of time in like this foster-like living situation with various families. Wow, that's sad. However, Jean claimed that at the time Joe was six years old, his father died in a car accident. And it was up to her to step up and take care of the six children alone. So she would go on to work hard as a waitress, a barmaid, and a food truck driver, taking double shifts to take care of her kids. Oh, wow. And Jean said that they were poor, but the children had never gone hungry. They had a roof over their head, just getting by, basically. Right, right. So she also explained that the kids were never bounced around from home to home as Joe made it seem. And this whole quote unquote hard upbringing never happened. According to Jean, it was a big fat lie and she had provided her children with a normal family life despite their financial difficulties. Wow. So Jean also said that Joe was an above average student, always polite and never mean as a child. He was smart and had a good childhood. 
if he was neglected, it was his own fault. It was a pretty good home. And that was a quote from Gene. Wow. Holy shit. That's that's intense. That's definitely intense. Right. Okay. Okay. So when Joe turned 18, he joined the military and he claimed that he served in Vietnam and became addicted to heroin and cocaine while in the artillery unit there. Now... It was confirmed that, yes, he did serve in the military, but there was literally no proof of him being there in Vietnam. Wow, gotcha. I do want to say as a side note that there were a lot of soldiers getting addicted to heroin and cocaine while in Vietnam. I can imagine. Yeah. I don't I don't disbelieve yeah, that. Yeah, there was, there was a drug problem. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, so that's why a lot of people ended up getting fucked up over there. Not just because of the war, but because of other things surrounding, like living Plus the war, right? Right, living situations and just, yeah. We're we're not going to have a history lesson on Vietnam right now, but, (laughs) you know. Very smooth, that smooth. (laughs) (laughs) So his mother even said that she had no recollection of him serving in Vietnam, and he served in Germany in 1973. And the Vietnam War was what, from 1955 to 1975? I believe so. So the circumstances of his service were reported as unverified in press reports. And American involvement in Vietnam had ended by that time, so the timing is off, too. Bethany seldom contacted his mother after he joined the Army. She said, quote, he just kept drifting further and further away. I think the worst thing that ever happened to him was drugs. It's a sad, sad story, end quote. Wow, holy shit. So when he got back home from his tour... Wherever he was at, he maintained no contact with his mother or anyone else from his family. Wow. He let the drugs consume him. He had nowhere to live, so he ended up on the streets. Son of a bitch. Joe was ironically nicknamed Tiny in the 1990s. He was like six foot one, large framed, overweight. He would spend his time in bars and on streets in South Baltimore, living with bands of homeless people in makeshift camps that were there. And he was becoming well known among the homeless community there for his drug abuse and his temper. Oh, shit. Those don't sound like... Exactly the best things to be known for. No, 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 no. Definitely not. Oh, my God. But professionally, he held down a job as a forklift operator, and he was known to be dependable, intelligent, and well-mannered. So he'd work, collect his paycheck, go live on the streets, and spend nearly all of his money on crack cocaine, heroin, and southern comfort. That's a hell of a grocery list. Also known as the Charlie Sheen diet. Fucking dead. (laughs) (laughs) Dead. (laughs) D-E-D dead. So he ends up meeting this woman, and I'm sorry I could not find her name anywhere, but Joe and this woman end up meeting, they fall in love, they get married, and even have a kid together. Wow, okay. Now, other sources say that she was just his girlfriend. I guess it could be either or. It could be either or. I'm just leaving that open to interpretation. Joe ended up getting a job as a truck driver and he got them a home. It was a trailer, but it was their place, you know? Right. That would sound like a nice, happy ending, but I'm sorry. It doesn't. 
You said this is just the beginning. (laughs) Sadly, his wife also became an addict. One night in July of 1994, Joe was coming home from work really late at night. And when he stepped in the house and turned the lights on, he was devastated to find that everything and everyone was gone. Gone? His wife and child were gone. Furniture was gone. Clothes. What? He knew right away that his wife packed up their kid, their belongings, and left. Holy shit. And his son was six years old at the time, too. So this really hit Joe hard. Like, I'm sure there's trauma from losing your own father at six years old just for your kid to lose their father at six years old. That probably plays a factor in his feelings, but he ended up just going through the motions day to day. He had no idea how to get in touch with his wife or even where she had gone. That is wild. Wild. Holy shit. Yeah, he just came home from work and everyone was was just gone. The house was empty. My goodness. So Joe went looking for them for days. He searched in halfway houses and under bridges where she used to buy drugs, but found nothing. He's quoted saying, Her leaving was not my problem, but she took my six-year-old son with her. She was a crack addict and a worthless piece of shit. I would have paid her to get out of my life. All she had to do was take my son over to my mother's house and she could have had everything else and be gone. End quote. Wow, that's pretty intense so if she was a crack addict and a worthless piece of shit then what the fuck are you bro that's it's i don't know i don't know like i'm thinking i'm on the same wavelength as you i was like damn that's pretty fucking intense but last time i checked at least this far into the story of what i've heard you were an addict too my guy like it's okay if he's a user but not okay for his wife like that doesn't make any sense to me but i also don't really have enough context i guess to really sit here and proclaim really what i think i just thought that was kind of weird moving along you'll see why i have nicknamed this man the misogynistic mr kool-aid man the misogynistic mr kool-aid man now that is a name (laughs) what a fucking name I don't like it. He's really something else. I really don't like this. So there's a six-month period where not much is known about what he was doing during this time. Could he have continued looking for his wife and child? Sure. But with that quote, I have to assume he didn't search long. Wow. Drugs were still very much a thing for him. He hadn't given that up, obviously. He's still very much involved in drugs and the dealer he knows and buys from a lot tells Joe that his wife was spotted on the other side of town with another guy. She left Joe with her six-year-old son to end up prostituting herself, using all the money to buy drugs. And also, if that wasn't bad enough, she had their son taken away from her for child neglect and child abuse. Oh my god. So this guy tells Joe everything they found out. And um, Joe begins to lose his temper. He's now going to take it upon himself to get his son back. Oh, God. Here's a quote from Joe. A quote from Joe. I found out about six months later she had moved on the other side of town with some asshole that had her out selling her ass for drugs. They got busted for drugs and they took my son away from them for child neglect and child abuse. 
I had no chance of going to social services and trying to get my son back due to my past criminal record. So I took it upon myself with the hatred I had for these two who lost my son to go looking for them. End quote. Oh, fuck. Chilling. Which I mean, same. Like, I'd lose my fucking mind if that were to ever happen to me and I got to fight to get my kid back. Might as well lock me up on site, like like Liam Neeson. <laughs> I, I have a specific set of skills, <laughs> you know, but he didn't go to the authorities because, well, he's on drugs and calling the cops was not an option. So right, right. This man goes on a full-blown John Wick fantasy mode and has every intention of taking matters into his own hands. Uh. Now, heroin made Joe angry and on edge most of the time. And you mix that with crack cocaine. And I bet Joe was a huge ticking time bomb. And Mm. I'm not saying that to be funny. Right, right. This is a big man. On some big drugs. With a big temper. Exactly. About to do some big damage. Hence, we're talking about it on our not-so-big podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it? Or is it getting there? We don't know. (laughs) It felt like the right thing to say. This sent me. Shut up, Gage. (laughs) (laughs) You said, I'm trying to get through this story and you won't stop fucking fooling the fuck around. (laughs) I love it, though. (laughs) So anyway, he finds out she's been visiting two homeless guys under a bridge. And he decides he's going to go down there and ask around. Okay. He's going to find these guys and get answers. Oh, shit. So he takes an axe with him. An axe. Because he believes that these two guys know where she's at, been doing drugs with her, and having sex with her. And right now, the only thing on his mind was a revenge rampage, basically. So, he goes to this bridge and asks the guys about his wife, and he didn't get the answers he wanted. Oh, my God. They didn't know his wife and had no clue where she was. So, then he proceeded to, quote-unquote, chop them up. What? the fuck joe what the fuck this is another excerpt from his confession letter quote they were passed out on some old stinking mattress and that's where they were when i left except they were dead from being chopped up end quote what the fuck what in the fuck joe so he's hacked up these two men and with no information he had to think of another way If his wife was indeed prostituting, then other women may know where she's at. So he spotted a sex worker in the area and he used drugs to lure her back under the bridge like the fucking troll he is. Jesus fucking Christ. So he lures her back to the bridge where he just killed two people and he starts asking her questions about his wife. And she doesn't know anything about his wife either. So then he proceeds to beat her rape her, and kill her. He then hid her body in the bushes and lured a second woman down there. Same thing. Jesus Christ! And I don't know if he sexually assaulted the second woman, but he did kill her. But according to this quote, though, he might have. Quote, That same night, I lured the first crack whore down under that bridge. 
I got her high and was trying to get information out of her about my old lady's whereabouts. She acted like she didn't know, so I beat the hell out of her and raped her ass, then killed her. I put her in some bushes and went and lured the second bitch down there. I did the same to her as the last one. But as I was about to throw her in the bushes with the other one, I noticed an old black man down by the river fishing looking back up at me, end quote. Oh my fucking God. And it's just disgusting. Like the way he views these women, calling them crack whores. And I absolutely hate that I don't have names of these people because uh, they are more than just sex workers. Absolutely. Or black men or homeless people. Um, I think this is just a person who is full of hate and he perceives his world a certain way. And it really shows by some of these quotes. It's just... uh, Well, now I'm seeing why you named him misogynistic Kool-Aid, man. Yeah. I kind of didn't get that much of it at first, but after that, now I fucking see it. Yeah, I don't like Joseph Ray Metheny. Can't say that I like him. (laughs) I don't either. Can't say that I like this man at all. So he believes that this man saw everything, and he's not about to take that chance. So he grabs a nearby steel pipe charges the man and, quote, laid his head wide open, end quote, killing him instantly. Jesus fucking Christ. So he just killed five fucking people in one go. Yes. Oh, my fucking God. This man is six foot one, 450 pounds. Like, can you imagine fighting someone off when they have a huge weight advantage on you? Like, you can't fucking do anything. There's nothing you can do with that. Jesus Christ, I just, I'm just still wrapping my mind around him killing five fucking people in a row. Oh, yeah. Like, that just absolutely, like, what the fuck, Joe? What the fuck? So, he weighs the three of them down with rocks and throws them into the Patapsco River. And I don't know what became of the remains of the two men he attacked with the axe, but there's another really sickening quote, and this turns my stomach. But he says, quote, that was a very busy night for me. Five murders within about seven hours. I washed up in that river and cleaned up the crime scene as much as I could then left, end quote. Oh my fucking God. And I don't know how true this is, but he also decapitated the two men and buried their heads, supposedly. Jesus fuck. Either way, that is just, that is savage. It is extremely savage. Completely, completely unhinged. Two and a half weeks later, Joe was arrested and charged with the murders of the two men, where he spent close to 18 months in the Baltimore City Jail waiting to go to trial. He even told law enforcement that he committed three more unrelated murders that same evening. He told them. The two women and the man fishing. He told them. That is fucking insane. Joe was tried for murder for killing Randall Brewer and Randy Piker. That was the name of the two men that he killed with the axe, supposedly. And the name of the bridge that they were under was the Hanover Street Bridge. Gotcha, gotcha. There had been disputes in court regarding rival groups of homeless men. Larry Amos, who was another homeless man. Mm-hmm. He was convicted of stealing the murder weapon and using it to kill Everett Dowell, who was also homeless. The bodies were discovered on August 2nd, 1995, which was the same day 
Everett Dowell was killed. And Larry Amos was arrested and accused of first-degree murder and pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter. And he was released after serving one year and nine months of an eight-year sentence. So a jury concluded in July of 1996 that there was insufficient evidence to convict Joe. So he walked. After telling authorities that he had killed three, you know, people unrelated to the murder he was being tried for, the double murder he was being tried for. Mm -hmm. So he, like, confesses all of this and then walks. Yes. Holy shit. Holy fucking shit. What in the... Here's a quote from him. (laughs) Did y'all hear that? Squidward was drowning. (laughs) Drowning. That's it. On second thought, I'm just not going to bring Squidward into this. Squidward's going to sit the fuck down, and he's going to sit, and he's going to be fine, because he just came out and he was drowning. Okay, so (laughs) this is a quote from Joe. I was free again. I went back and talked my old boss into giving my job back to me at the pallet company. There was a little trailer on the property, so I told my boss to let me stay there and I could keep an eye on the place. He agreed to this and gave me the keys to the front gate in the main building. The company was on a dead-end road and was very isolated. It was perfect for what I wanted to do, end quote. Oh, fuck, man. So, (laughs) what began as crimes of passion fueled by drug use ended up turning into crimes for pleasure. His time inside did nothing to change him. You would think that the time he spent in jail, he would maybe get sober and clear his head up. I don't know, maybe turn his fucking life around. Anything. But nope. Onward with more fuckery. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Joe began to develop a pattern by befriending sex workers, and he would offer to do drugs with them and talk them into going back to his trailer. Oh, God. So this guy is just a fucking skis ball. He's sleazy as fuck, and I don't like him. Yeah, I definitely don't like him either. This whole vibe is just, like, really shitty. Like, it's really (laughs) shitty. He ends up luring the unsuspecting victims into his trailer, and he would then end up strangling them and dismembering them. Whoa. The minute they walk in the door, he attacks And sometimes he would beat them in the head until they fell unconscious. But most of the time he used strangulation. Jesus fucking Christ. Full escalation from here. Quote, I lured two more crack whores up there to my trailer. I killed and butchered their bodies up. I cut the meat up and put it in some Tupperware bowls, then put it in a freezer. I buried the remains in several shallow graves in a little woods behind the company. End quote. Oh, my God. My God. Yep. He would strangle them, uh, rape them, dismember them. Beat them. Yeah. And then put them in a fucking freezer. Yep, in Tupperware. Jesus fucking Christ. This man was sick. So I'm going to talk a little bit about his victims. So Joe murdered 39-year-old Kathy Ann Magaziner in 1994. He buried her body in a shallow grave, again, on site at the company. He said he strangled her, and six months later, he dug her up, decapitated her, cleaned her head up, 
and he put her head in a box. He would have sexual relations with the decapitated head on several occasions. Oh, my God. And sometime later, he threw the box in the trash. Her body remained there for more than two years. He murdered Kimberly Lynn Spicer in mid-November of 1996 by stabbing her to death. Jesus. So Joe is staying at this trailer, working as a truck driver, murdering people and eating them, and then he decides he's going to open a business. Quote, Over the next couple weeks on the weekends, I opened up a little open pit beef stand. I had real roast beef and pork sandwiches, and why not? They were very good. The human body taste was very similar to pork. <gasps> if you mix it together, no one can tell the difference. End quote. Oh, fuck no. No. Don't tell me. Do not so, fucking tell me. He was taking the meat that he cut off his victims and stored in Tupperware containers and he would mix the human meat in with roast beef and pork, and he called it his quote-unquote special meat. And people were driving by this open pit stand he got because it was on a main road, and there's no telling how many people ate his sandwiches. His stand was open for weeks. He was feeding people people. Yes. Oh. My. Fuck. And no one ever complained or had anything negative to say about his little setup or the sandwiches themselves. My God. Oh my fuck. My jaw is through the fucking floor. This man was feeding people people. Yes. This reminds me. Oh my God. I fucking hate it. It's like I saw this really messed up uh, gif on Tumblr one time, and it was like this kid, he had a box of McDonald's chicken nuggets, and he threw them on the ground with a bunch of chickens, and they started eating it, and even though I know that, like, I guess McDonald's chicken nuggets aren't really chicken nuggets, they're maybe not. they are, they're not, I don't know. It's pink slime. But either way... Sorry to break that to you, but it's pink slime. <laughs> either way, that's fucking chilling, and I hate that. Yeah. A literal... Cannibal. Yes. Oh my God. No I will one... never fucking touch barbecue again. <laughs> so, needless to say, he never got a bad review on Yelp. Jesus, <laughs> that makes me so sick. I know. It's oh terrible. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my fucking God. No one knows how long this went on for, and no one knows how many victims he really killed. But Joe says that he killed 10 people. So who knows if he's telling the truth or not. Maybe there's murders that he committed that he wanted to keep to himself like trophies. Like, I don't know. Jesus but, Christ, man. This is fucked. Quote, everything was going pretty good until I ran out of my special meat. So I lured another bitch up to my trailer. I got her in there and started to rip her clothes off and knocking the hell out of her. She was screaming, but there was no one around to hear her except me, and I just kept on laughing at her, end quote. What a sick fuck. Fuck you. Fuck you, Joe Metheny. Fuck you. Right. He lured Rita Kemper to his trailer on December 8th, 1996. They were doing drugs together in his trailer, and he tried to make a move on her, but she refused to have sex with him and ran out of the trailer. So he chased her started to beat her, dragged her back into the trailer, 
and then pulled down her pants and attempted to rape her. Oh, my God. Rita said he attempted to murder her, saying, quote, I'm going to kill you and bury you in the woods with the other girls, end quote. Jesus, what a sadistic fuck. That man is sadistic as fuck. Like, you can clearly tell that he fucking enjoys doing this. Yes. Like, my God, just preying on the fucking terror in people. My God. Quote, I turned around for a split second, and that was my mistake. For she ran out the door before I could get to her. There was an eight-foot chain-link fence with barbed wire on top of it around the front of the company. There was a stack of wooden pallets next to the fence about ten feet high. That bitch scaled those pallets like a monkey and jumped the fence and ran down to the main road where some guy in a pickup truck picked her up and took her to a nearby gas station where they called the cops, end quote. Oh my god. Like, this is fucking unreal. Like, and unreal as fuck. It's disgusting. It is disgusting. It's it's as disgusting as he looks. Jesus, which I'm sure we'll have it. You guys can go to our socials and see a handy-dandy picture of this Joseph Metheny. Wonderful. Yay. <laughs> fuck. Joe knew the cops were on their way, but he didn't run. He gathered up her clothing grabbed the keys to the gate, and went out and opened it. And as soon as he stepped out the gate, a cop car pulled up. The cops jumped out with guns drawn and told him to get on the ground, and that's where it all came to an end. But there is another version to the story on how he got caught, and I wanted to mention it. Because apparently, Joe asked a friend to help him bury the body of Kimberly Spicer, which he had been hiding at the factory site since killing her a month earlier. And this friend reported it to the police on December 15th, 1996, and Joe was arrested and charged with her murder the same day. How that falls into the timeline, I have no clue, but it's just more information yeah. that I've come across that I have had a hard time piecing together because there's not a clear cut and dry like story of what's going on. Right, so there's more than one version of how he got caught, basically. Yeah, and then there's this version where the owner of the business was arrested with Joe as they were leaving a Christmas party, so who knows? Like, the owner was charged as an accessory after the fact for allegedly disposing of evidence. Either way, police said that he chose young white sex workers who were addicted to heroin and cocaine. The killings also involved brutal sexual assaults, believed to have been carried out before and after he killed his victims. Jesus. He was also indicted for killing 28-year-old Tony Lynn and Gracia, but those charges were later dropped for lack of evidence. And he claimed to have also killed three other prostitutes along Washington Boulevard in Baltimore, although there was no evidence of most of those crimes other than his confession. So, while Joe was in custody... He confessed to all these murders. He even led police to his shallow grave where he reburied Kathy Magaziner's decapitated remains. And much of her skull was missing, but the police were able to identify her by dental records. So, Joe also took law enforcement to the river where he dumped the bodies, believe it or not. But the bodies were gone. There was literally no evidence left behind because of environmental factors. Right, animals, stuff like that. Right. Quote, they had me sitting in a little room down at Homicide, drilling me and damn near kissing my ass, trying to find out what I had done. 
They pulled me out of city jail every day for one month, taking me back and forth between the company and the bridge. I had them going crazy over at the company, digging up the remains of those two bitches there, because I had their remains buried in seven different holes, end quote. Oh my fucking God. During the court proceedings, his attorney said that he was remorseful and that drugs and alcohol had changed his personality and made him violent. But he says this in his confession letter, which completely blows that out of the water. Yeah, there's no, sorry, I don't believe that shit for a second. Uh, Sorry, sorry. The only thing I feel bad about in any of this is I didn't get to murder the two motherfuckers I was really after. And that's my ex-old lady and the bastard she got hooked up with, end quote. My God. So he's not sorry. No, definitely fucking not. Um, Joseph R. Metheny was only convicted of two murders and one kidnapping for the one victim that got away. He got 50 years for the kidnapping. The first murder, he was sentenced to life without parole. And the second one, they gave him the death penalty. And he sat on Maryland's death row for three years. And then they overturned his sentence and gave him another life without parole. What the fuck? His death penalty sentence in the murder of Kathy Magaziner was overturned on July 24th, 2000. They gave him another life without parole sentence. And basically it was a technicality. The court found insufficient evidence that he robbed Kathy, which is an aggravated circumstance that allowed the prosecutors to seek the death penalty. So his lawyer said that although he buried Kathy's clothes and purse in a different place than her body, his removal of the items was not part of the crime. Like, the court is so weird, bro. That, I like, don't, the justice system is fucking, that's a whole nother episode, a whole nother tangent right, that we right. could have. So, not even going to talk about so it. So, like, I can murder you and bury you with your clothes and possessions you have on you. And because of that, I get a lighter sentence than if I robbed and murdered you because then it's aggravated. As if murder isn't aggravated. That's what I'm fucking saying. Like, it make makes it no make sense. sense. It makes no fucking sense. So his case was moved from Baltimore where he killed Kathy to a different county where he pled guilty to murder and robbery. I wasn't able to find where that was, like what county. I kind of lost the trail there. But during this proceeding, Joe used graphic language toward the jury, begging them for the death penalty. And at one point he said, quote, the words I'm sorry will never come out for they would be a lie. I am more than willing to give up my life for what I have done to have God judge me and send me to hell for eternity, end quote. Fuck. He later said he killed because he just enjoyed it. The jury deliberated for two hours before coming to a verdict, and Joe's lawyer, Margaret Mead, said that the appeals court made the right decision by acknowledging insufficient evidence of a robbery because the purse and clothing were simply just left there when he killed Magaziner. Uh, She also said that Joe pleaded guilty to the robbery charge against the advice of his lawyers. And as far as outcomes go, Mead said she suspected Joe would be happy even though he told the jury he wanted to die. She said, quote, once the fanfare was over, he realized he really does want to live, end quote. Ah, you don't say. I'm sorry, excuse me for one moment. I'm fucking glad you get to live. Your victims didn't get to live. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That makes... Like, this 
fat, sleazy bastard. Just because his victims were sex workers and homeless people, like, that doesn't mean that they were any less human. They all deserve to have a happy life, regardless of occupation or any other factor. Right. And I said what the fuck I said. Right. No, and I, I agree. I agree. I think all of us can agree on that. <laughs> that is, it doesn't matter how much money you have in your wallet. Everyone is entitled to having a happy, fruitful fucking life. We are all equal. Absolutely. So, you know, it's just, uh, it really bothered me not having names of his victims. It really bothered me just referring to them as sex workers and homeless people because they are already known as less dead. And I hate that. Yeah. I just hate that. No, I do too. But I do too. On August 17th, 2017, Metheny was found dead in his prison cell at the Western Correctional Institution located in Cumberland, Maryland, and he was 62 years old. Wow. Holy shit. So he died. Oh, yeah. He's dead. Now I'm going to leave you all with a quote from Joseph Metheny, and this is a direct quote from his confession, and it makes me queasy as fuck oh god and this is how we're gonna end today's episode oh god okay quote well that's my story horrible but true so the next time you're riding down the road and you happen to see an open pit beef stand that you've never seen before make sure you think about this story before you take a bite of that sandwich sometimes you never know who you may be eating And that concludes the story of Joseph R. Metheny. My God, I did not like it. I did not like it either. There was nothing about this episode that I liked. Me neither. <laughs> but that's usually how it goes. Right. <laughs> I think with the information obstacle that you had in this case, I still felt like you did a very good job. That was about the most enjoyable form of not fucking enjoyable that it could have possibly no, been. No, I thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, I hardly know what to say at the end of this. Just goodness gracious. And Julia, I hope that you enjoyed our take on the story yes and thank you again for your email julia it was very kind we appreciate it <laughs> i'm going straight into goblin mode i revert so quickly back into I'm that telling you know you. i I'm really really you. do i'm so glad this was over so yes be careful of what you eat <laughs> that is for the warning sure. here that last quote that we ended on no ma'am Absolutely no fucking man was not a fan of that shit at all. He is sick as fuck. Yeah. Sick as fuck. My God. I mean, wow. What a hell of an episode to kick off the start of year two. Right. You did good. Did good. You did good. Can't did really good. say I like it, but I felt like you did good. <laughs> So this was a kind of short and kind of sweet episode, you guys. But nonetheless, we hope you enjoyed it. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, great news. You can do that. Find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. Oh, my voice cracked like fuck. I meant to say at gore report <laughs> so yeah you guys i don't really have much to say at the end of this other than i never want to eat a barbecue pork sandwich like ever a fucking again 
like ever again. <laughs> I never want to touch it. I never want to smell it. I never want to touch barbecue. It's just fucking done. So on that note, bye. bye.